0: Chaos. No one thrives on chaos. No one thrives on disorder. I think all of us have experienced it at some point. We've, uh, maybe we've worked at some place where it seems like everything was out of order. Uh, not just that it was casual... But that was disorderly. Nobody knew who was in charge of what. nobody You, you could you could never find the tools that you needed. And it was always like things were, were falling through the cracks. Or maybe you've been in kind of a disorderly uh, home. Not a little bit messy. Not a little bit lived in. But chaotic. Uh, it's very hard to thrive in that kind of chaotic situation. Uh, maybe you played on a sports team. Uh, and the coach just Even if he was brilliant, even if he was a great player himself, he could not figure out how to get things together. He he did not know how to pull things into order. Order helps people thrive. Order leads to productivity and life. And I I think we all see it like we, like even people who say that they don't, they, they thrive on chaos. What I really think they mean is that they thrive on maintaining order in the midst of chaos and bringing order out of chaos. Nobody actually thrives on chaos. We've all been at the, at the grocery store. Uh, we, we don't really even recognize it when there is order, but when you're at the grocery store uh, and there are plenty of cashiers uh, for just the right number of people, we don't, we don't recognize that. But when there are 25 cash registers... And only one cashier for 50 people? We all recognize that something's wrong there. We all recognize that there is this disorder. This is, this is not right. This is, this is frustrating. This is causing us to, to, to have difficulty. Disorder leads to death. But chaos, out of chaos, God brings order which leads to life. And what I hope that you'll see today is that God created order in the world. He created order to bring about life, to make it livable, to make it life-producing. And that by the end of today, you will not, no longer try and run around God's order, but instead try and live consistently with God's order and find life in the way that God designed the world uh, to work. It'll be in Genesis 1 today. Uh, and the first thing that I want you to see is, is God made everything. God created everything. Starting at the beginning, uh, we'll read verses 1 and 2, Genesis 1, 1 and 2. God created everything. This is what it says, Genesis 1, 1 and 2 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. You see, there in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. One of the helpful things about reading the Old Testament is try to try to read the Old Testament and try to even try to get your mindset into how did the how did the first people hear this word? Uh, all of the scriptures for us, First Corinthians ten, Paul tells us that everything that was written in the Old Testament was written for our benefit, on whom the the culmination of the ages has fallen. Uh, and yet, we also know that Genesis was was first written for the Israelites, the Israelites who are there at Mount Sinai, the Israelites who are there in the desert. And, and think about how they hear it. And so they're hearing it as opposed to all of the other gods who are around. They are hearing that God, their God, created everything, created the heavens and the earth. That that You put the heavens, you put the earth together, that's everything. That's the entire universe. That's everything that is knowable. And what he does when he creates is that he creates everything out of nothing. In the beginning, there is just God. There's just God existing. There's just just God is. And then out of nothing, he brings something. He causes, by his word, something to exist. He makes heaven and earth. Uh, and, and if, if Genesis 1-1 is not clear enough about that, one of our first memory verses here at the Vine was Hebrews 1-3. It says, by faith we understand that the world was made... By the Word of God, was created by the Word of God, and it was not made out of things that are visible. The implication is that it was made from nothing. There was no pre existing matter, there was was nothing there in the beginning, there was simply God. And God created the heavens and the earth. It's interesting there uh, that the writer of Hebrews uses the word faith. And earlier in Hebrews 11, 1, he says that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things unseen. You know, lots of times we think about uh, the ways that God can speak to us truly about things that we haven't seen. We often think about that as far as in terms of things that are future. So God can tell us the truth about things that are going to happen in the future that we have not observed yet, that no one has observed, that only God can know. But we can also rely on what God says for what happened before anybody was around to observe anything. Only God was there. In the beginning, it was only God. God was the only one who observed the creating of the heavens and the earth. There were no other human beings around, but God can speak the truth to us about things that have not been seen. And we believe his word because we have seen him be faithful over and over again. We have seen his promises come true over and over again so that we know that his word is true. This is the God who cannot lie. And he tells us that in the beginning, he created the heavens and the earth. Something for us to, to hold on to and to believe and to, and to build our lives upon. And then it says, uh, you can think of, of Genesis 1.1 as kind of like the title. For this section of the scriptures. And then we see we move into uh, verse 2. Uh, and that's sort of like the subtitle. Think of it that way. It says that the earth was without form and void. Or some translations will say that it was, it was formless and empty. What what the what God is describing there. What Moses is writing down there. Is a description of what isn't there. What is it What does it look like? How do you describe what isn't? It's it's formless. There's there's nothing like there are no barriers. There's no separation there. There is nothing but formlessness. And then within the thing that there is no form, there's nothing but emptiness. It's just void. There is formlessness and emptiness and there is darkness, darkness over the deep. That that idea of the deep is the idea of of nothing but chaos. So in the beginning there was nothing but formlessness and emptiness and darkness and chaos. That is what God that is what God began to bring about. What he what he started with with no, was nothing but chaos. There could be no life where there is formlessness and emptiness and darkness and chaos. There could be no life there. And what God began to do was He began to, as the Author of life, He began to create life. He began to create a world that took on form. And so, it, but but we have this little this little hint of anticipation. Even though there is formlessness and emptiness and darkness and chaos, the Spirit of God is there hovering over this chaos. This chaos is not in a sense of outside of God's control. But instead, the spirit of God is there and is about to uh, be used. That God, God himself, by the spirit and by his word, is about to bring form out of chaos. He is about to fill that form with, with many, many things which he creates from his, own, from his own mind and by his own wisdom. And he is going to bring light out of darkness. ...order out of chaos. Think about that. Think about that as the background for the days that we're about to see. The days of creation. This, this formlessness, this emptiness, this darkness... ...this chaos is about to be transformed by the word of God... Uh, ...on these six days of creation. Alright, so we see that God created everything. God created everything. Now, let's see that God created order. Starting with verse uh, 3... We're going to read through verse 13. This is about the first three days of creation. The first three days where we see that God created order. It says, and God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day and the darkness he called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. The third day. Let me start with just some elements that are common to all of the days of creation. First of all, everything that God made was created by his word. It was created through his word. It's it's God speaking. It was the power of his word that brought these things into existence. That is is an example of God's tremendous power that is there. The power that is in his word. It is his power to create. Just by speaking. And we know we see that same thing happen all through scripture. We see in some place like Ezekiel 37 that God's word, God's people are created by God's word. Ezekiel is there and he is, he is in a vision seeing a valley of dry bones. And by speaking God's word, God uses his word and causes life to fill those dry bones. It causes life to come into the people of God. So that where the people of God seem to have died. Ezekiel is there uh, picturing a time of exile where the people seem to have become non-existent. And yet God is calling them forth by his word. We see the same pattern in 1 Peter 1, 22-25 and James 1, 18, Where it says that God's word causes people to be born again. God's word brings, uh, brings out of death life. Causes us, brought us forth by the word of truth. God's word is a created creative word. We also know that Jesus Christ is identified as the word. John 1, 1 through 18. All things were made through him. All things were made through the word. The word was there. We see uh, this this picture pointing us back to the beginning where there is the spirit hovering over the waters of chaos and there is the word there bringing about life. By God, by, by God, everything is made through the word and that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are there. Only hinted at here in Genesis 1. Not a clear picture, but we know from later on where it where revealed to us the, the nature of God in his one being in three persons. And all things were made through Jesus Christ. We know that light, as light came into the world in the beginning through Jesus Christ. So light has come into the world through Jesus Christ now. A a world that was cast into darkness because of man's sin. Jesus Christ has come and he brings light into a dark world. And also know from Colossians 1. Colossians 1, 15 through 19, where it says that all of creation was made through Jesus Christ and That Jesus Christ is the goal of all creation. Everything was made for him. Life came into being through Jesus Christ. And life is for the purpose of Jesus Christ. We are here to live for Him. We find, our, we find our meaning in life. We find our purpose in life in living for Jesus Christ. Everyone who is not living for Jesus Christ is, is banging their head up against a, a, an invisible wall, a wall that they are too blind to see. And they're finding out that the world, the world does not work the way that it's supposed to outside of Jesus Christ. Over and over again they, they are finding that they Apart from Jesus Christ. Life is not real. There's a sense of vanity to life. So we see that God creates by his word. Also see what God says about his world. Every time he makes something he says that it is good. What God made is good. Everything that God has created is good. Uh. Early uh, throughout church history and, and even in the New Testament times, there is this, there is this sense, there is this false teaching uh, that there, there are two parts to existence, to reality. The material part, those things that are tangible, those things that we can see. And then there's the immaterial part, the spiritual part, the part that we can't see. And the material part is bad. The material part is evil and the spiritual part is good. What we see in the scripture is a very different picture. Originally, creation was good. And our spirits, after the fall, are a lot more sinful than we would like to think that they are. In the beginning, God created all things good. And the reason why this is important is because this undercuts all false teaching that teaches a form of asceticism and abstinence from the good things that God has created. If you want to flip over to 1 Timothy 4. 1 Timothy 4. 1 Timothy 4 verses 1 through 5. And I just want to read something here about the way that Paul applies the goodness of God's creation. The goodness of God's creation. It says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Uh, so we're we're sort of revisiting what we heard Matt preach about from Second Peter just a few weeks ago that we're we're warned it is expressly spoken to us that there are going to be false teachers. But what is the content of some of their false teaching? Pick up in verse three. Who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth? For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made by the word, made holy by the word of God and prayer. Everything that God made is good. Everything that he created is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Think about that. Everything, all of the gifts that we have. You know, and, and this is what God intends for us. He intends for us to enjoy what he has made and to be thankful for what he has made. Well, one, of the, one of the greatest insults that you can give to a cook is to not enjoy or thank them for what they've made. One of the greatest insults that you can give to a musician is to not enjoy or thank them for the music that they are making. In the same way, when we do not enjoy what God makes or thank God for what he makes, we insult him. We insult him. These things were made for our enjoyment and for thanksgiving. I think the one thing that we could add is that we also want to share these things for the purpose of the enjoyment of other, of our neighbor. We also want them to enjoy what God has made and and to be able to give thanks. But these things were given to us for us to enjoy and to give thanks. If we abstain from them, and it it can be right for us to abstain from some things that God has created. But when we abstain from them, it's not because those things are bad. It's because there's a part of us. That has still not been put to death, and we are abstaining from some things because for the purpose of putting sin to death in us, but it's not because of something that God has made that is wrong. God, everything that God made is good. And we also see that thanksgiving puts a limitation on the way that we use the things that God has made. We can give thanks for marital sex. But we cannot give thanks for sexual immorality. We can give thanks for food and drink, but we cannot give thanks for gluttony and drunkenness. That helps us to have limitations on what God has made. God makes all things good, but they are made with a design for for us to be enjoyed. They are enjoyed within their proper boundaries. We see over and over here in Genesis 1 that God separates. God makes distinctions. People who know how to live and know how to live right know how to make distinctions. They know how to split things up into, no, this does not go here. This goes here. This goes here at this time. And I think one of the things that we we should be able to do is we should be people who know how to feast well and fast well. When we fast... We fast not because we believe that what God has created is, is bad. It's because we want more of our Creator. But when we feast, we feast with thanksgiving to our Creator. We feast. We know how to enjoy what He's given. We, and whether we have lack or whether we have much, we know how to be content with what God has given us. All right, let's go back to, uh, to, uh, to Genesis 1. See that all that God has made is good. And let's look at the order that God brings about here. He, he, the first thing that he does is that he separates light from darkness. There's this separation that brings order into, into life. He, he calls the light day and he calls the, not, uh, the, the, the darkness night. This is God demonstrating his authority over all things that are created. Sometimes, sometimes darkness can be frightening. Children, you ever you ever scared of the dark? And maybe you're not scared of the dark in your beds at night because you know that's safe, but you're scared of the dark when you're walking through the woods and you don't know where you're at. The darkness can be frightening, but God, God has power over darkness. The darkness cannot overcome the light. But God has power over darkness. And then he separates the waters above from the waters beneath. Calling, the, calling, calling it sky or the heavens. He is forming. He is making it where we can live here. He is forming a world that has, has form and order to it. And then he is taking the waters beneath and he is, he is separating them. And he's making dry land. And he's calling the dry land earth. And he's calling the waters seas. seas Water is another thing that can be frightening. Especially if you're a Palestinian farmer and you don't go out on boats very often. That's, that's scary. If you've been in, a, in an incredible story, you've been through a hurricane, you've seen what, what water can do. Water can be extremely frightening, but God has power over the seas. Jesus Christ himself spoke to the wind and the water and said, be still. And they were still. God has power over that. There is nothing to fear ...from what God has made because God has control over it. There isn't anything, one of the things that we should notice here. And this would include everything that we see and everything that we can't see. Satan and his forces, creation. There is nothing that is outside of the power of God. Even when we know that, that evil things happen, that evil happens in our world... ...we know that God is taking things that are intended for evil and he is using them for good. There is nothing outside of his power. And we see that he causes vegetation to come up. Vegetation to come up from the ground. Tremendu- a tremendous variety of vegetation. So, berries and crops and cereal grains and, and uh, green beans and, and fruit trees, everything, every, every form of vegetation. The reason what God is doing here is he is not only forming order, but he is creating productivity. He is making the earth fruitful. So that we can live. It's this order that's there in the world. That is the basis for all wisdom. Wisdom is the recognition of the order. That is left in the world. As we read through the book of Proverbs. On Sunday mornings. I hope that you'll recognize. That wisdom is closely uh, tied. To recognizing how the world works. And it's recognizing that there is this order. To the world. That really convinced me. To pursue a, a, a kind of family-driven uh, model of family ministry in the church, God uh, God created uh, fathers to lead their homes. He created parents to parent their children, and he he designed pastors to proclaim God's word to fathers and parents and children to equip them to carry out their callings. But he did not design pastors to be fathers for all of the children or be parents for all of the children. And one of the things that we need to continually reaffirm in the culture that we live in is God's order. Uh, now, almost uh, all of us are in some ways going to have an order. Uh, none of us come from a background that is an idyllic order. Uh, many of us come from, uh, from uh, and, and even God... Uh, we come from broken marriages and broken homes, uh, and, and that is what God has brought us out of. And, and in fact, God does not even need his order in order to redeem things. It's not like he has to make everything perfectly order and orderly and perfectly right before he can redeem us. God takes us from where we are, not from where we were supposed to have been. Does that make sense? But at the same time, there are some who are saying that we can just disregard God's order. That you don't have to be married to have children. Or that fathers are sort of an optional piece to a family. Or that marriage is not supposed to consist of one man and one woman for life. That's not the way things are. They they say that we can just get rid of all that. What we need to continually come back to and reaffirm is that God has an order and a design to what he has made. And to to speak about God's design. And how much agony and pain is there in the world because people said we don't have to live in God's design. We don't have to live in the order that God created. If we want to alleviate pain and suffering in the world, one of the things that we need to continually lead people back to is wisdom. Living consistently with God's word. Living in families that are dedicated to God's word. That are trying to live by the design that God created. Teaching men to father their homes. To be fathers where they live. To be husbands. To be servant leaders. Teaching children to obey their parents. Teaching husbands and wives to be faithful to one another. Teaching people to work in their calling that god has given them whatever god has called you to to work at it heartily with all of your heart as as working for the lord and not for men when when people begin to do that they will begin to find they will begin to find that that order produces life we know that in a a corrupted world in a world that has fallen we know that that Wisdom does not lead to success 100% of the time. That's the reason why it doesn't. It's because uh, man uh, sinned and brought sin into the world. But we can live, we can, we can know prosperity and joy in this life by living consistently with God's word. I don't mean enjoyment and success the way that world necessarily defines wisdom and success. Enjoyment and success, with the way that God designed for us to take part in his world, we can, we can begin to, to live a life that is fruitful and productive. And the, the vegetation that's made here, uh, Acts 14, when, when Paul is preaching to some men, and, and they have actually, the men have actually come, uh, and they're actually trying to treat uh, Paul and Barnabas as gods. And God, uh, Paul uses, as a part of his sermon, he says that the bread that God has given you is a witness to you. You have never been left without a witness. Every place where God produces food and people eat food, there is a witness of our Creator. You think about that? Think about that as a witnessing opportunity. You invite your friend out for lunch. They're not a Christian. There sitting right in front of them is evidence of their creator. It is inescapable. Every place where where God provides life, there is a witness that God is our creator. And I've said this before and I'm going to say it again and again. Every time there is food on your table, every time that is from God, he uses means to do that. God has an order. He, he determines the end, and he determines the ways that we get to that end. But every time we eat, God did that. Every time. Every time we enjoy that food, God did that. God did that. So we see that God is creating an orderly and productive world. He creates order. We need to live with it consistently with that order. And that leads into the next part, that this order that God has put into the world, it, it is there for life. It produces life, that God created life. So read with me uh, verses 14 through 31. That's what it says. it says. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years Uh, to have this just be one sermon. But we're not going to get to everything here today. Uh, we'll get to everything next week. But I just want to address a few things that come out here. Uh, and one that we're all going to have, uh, have questions about normally when we read Genesis 1. Uh, and that is, uh, how long are these days uh, and how old is the earth? How long are these days and how old is the earth? When you look at the passage... It is inescapable to me that these are six 24hour days uh, when uh, when a, I think about how I again I, I say a, how a Hebrew would have heard this they hear it the same way that we probably would this this word day which is yom like Yom Kippur the day of atonement yom in the Hebrew Every time that it has a, a number in front of it, says this is the first. It's referring to a to a literal twenty four hour day, and that's only supported by the idea of, of evening and morning. It's, it's a picture of six literal twenty four hour days. Uh, the uh, now, now some so one of the things that some uh, some scholars will say is that is that. We don't have to take it literally because uh, because we have to understand how to read this literature. There is some ambiguity in Genesis one, is what they say. One of the things that I would like to ask them, one of the things that I would like to know, is if there's so much ambiguity in Genesis one, why is it that every interpreter in Christian history who interpreted Genesis one, the vast majority interpreted them as twenty four hour days? Are we to think that that over and over again, they, they saw a day and they just didn't understand it. Now, I understand that different literature and scripture have to be read differently. We can, uh, anybody who reads the Bible can recognize that 1 Samuel is different. The, the, the historical narrative of 1 Samuel is different from the poetry in Psalms. Or it's different from the letters of Paul. Or it's different from the apocalyptic literature of Revelation. They're different kind of literature. And so they need to be interpreted slightly differently. Almost anybody who reads that can can pick up the differences. Almost everybody who reads Genesis 1, the reason why it's a problem, what kind of days they are, is not because it's not obvious or because there's a kind of, of literature problem. We don't know how to read it. The problem is we do know how to read it. And it sounds like God created the world in six days. And and the other thing is, is that if there's ambiguity and if there are some parts that are history. I mean, look at the most poetic part of what I just read. The most poetic part of what I just read is the creation of humankind in God's image. So are we to say that that's figurative, that that's not that's not real? What happens when you try to divide it into historical parts and non-historical parts is that what what you have is that you're really ruling over the text rather than submitting to the text. We want to submit to the text and believe what the text says. And if you say that Genesis 1 is not historical, what about Genesis 2? What, it sounds it sounds a little bit weird in Genesis 1? Oh, it, it doesn't sound... Uh, a little bit atypical to have God form a human being out of dirt and then breathe life into him? Or what about Genesis 3? That, it doesn't sound a little bit uh, atypical to have a, a serpent speak? What are we saying about those chapters? You know, one of the big controversies in scholarship today is whether or not Adam was a historical figure. The reason why they're having a controversy over that is because they already said that these days in Genesis 1 are not 24-hour days. If think, of, think of doctrine as like a big Jenga tower. You ever played Jenga? You, know, you have the wooden blocks that are stacked on top of one another, and, and you, you kind of poke out a block, and you poke out a block and you put it on top. Now, there are some Christian doctrines that if you, if you poke that block out, the, the tower tumbles immediately. The tower falls down. You say that uh, Jesus Christ is is not God, or that He did not die on the cross, or rise from the dead. Immediately, the tower the, the tower falls. The tower tumbles. Everything falls apart. Then there are other Christian doctrines that we believe that you know you kind of poke them out and you put them on top, and they don't necessarily make everything fall apart immediately. I think one of the things that we should recognize is that that. People sometimes can have inconsistent beliefs and still be Christians. We're all growing in, some, in, in our understanding of some Christian doctrines. So there are some things that can be, uh, that can be uh, not quite right, and yet a person can still be a Christian. But what scholars have done in some cases in trying to interpret Genesis 1 is that they, they, they poked out this little block. And they they put it on top, and they said, "Hey, it didn't fall down. Let's poke out another one." And they keep poking out blocks until eventually, what's going to happen? It's going to tumble, and that's why there's controversy. That's why there that's why there are people talking about what what well. That, that's why there are fights happening between so-called evangelical scholars and other so-called evangelical scholars over the historicity of genesis 1 uh, 1 through 11 really and so now we we kind of look at the days there and let's talk about the age of the earth the only reason why anyone ever even comes to the point of trying to deny the the literal days the 24 hour days of genesis 1 is because they want to accommodate the the seeming age of the earth that the predominant scientific theory of our day says says that the earth is about 4 billion years old, and the universe is about 14 billion years old. That's what it says. Uh, That's a lot more zeros at the end than than the apparent thousands of years that are here in Genesis. So why is that? Why is that? One of the things that we should realize about the predominant scientific theory of our day concerning the origins of the earth is that It completely rules out as a base assumption. And this is not a scientific assumption. This is a philosophical assumption. That is, all of us come to all all knowledge with a worldview. And the, the atheistic, naturalistic worldview that is the basis of the predominant scientific theory of our day says that there is no creator and there was no catastrophic flood. It says those things didn't happen. So then it has to explain what happened in another way. And so this is what it says. Uh, it, it says that something came from nothing. Well, you know what? It takes a really long time for something to come from nothing. If you sit around waiting beside nothing and waiting for it to spontaneously come into something the way that some scientists say that the world came into being, then you have to wait a really long time. Or... It also takes a really long time for living things to come from non-living things. So maybe like you, you like make like like a ring of rocks, like a campfire or something, and you kind of sit there and wait for them to spontaneously turn into birds or or even just some kind of proto organism. You're going to be waiting a really long time. Or if you if you wait for this single-celled proto-organism to all of a sudden uh, become the the almost innumerable variety of life that is in the world, that takes a really, really long time. Just explaining, that is, I think that I have represented the predominant scientific theory of our day. Something came from nothing. The living came from the non-living. And... All living things have a common proto-organism as it's, its first life form. All of them come from that. I think that's accurate. And it sounds ridiculous just coming out of my mouth. It's a myth. It's a myth. Atheists had to come up with a story to explain the origin of the earth that did not include a creator that they had to be accountable to. So they created a myth. And one of the things that we should pick up from the the original hearers of Genesis 1 is that when they heard it, they were hearing God explain in a way that contradicted all of the worldviews that were around them. They were hearing about a God who, uh, who is not identified with the sun or the moon, but a God who created the sun and the moon. They were hearing about a God who is not identified with the great sea creatures in the deeps. They were hearing about a God who created those sea creatures. We cannot bow down to any created thing precisely because God created all things. And we believe his word. And what we see in Genesis 1 is that this infinite, almost, almost innumerable variety of life that we see in the world... Plant life, animal life, in the sky, in the sea, on the earth, creeping things, uh, beast of the earth, uh, uh, livestock of innumerable kinds. The reason why all of that is there is because God created it. God created life. God created life. Now if there's one verse that many people have heard. And that many people will maybe have memorized. It's Genesis 1-1. And Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That leaves all people accountable. Just, Just the fact that... Flip over to Romans 1. Just briefly. Romans 1. And the same way that daily bread is a witness to every human being on the face of the earth... God has given a witness to everyone. Listen to to Romans 1, verses 18 through 20. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. There are some things that a person cannot not know. All people know that there is a creator. Even when they deny it, the truth is they know. The witness is there in their daily bread. The witness is there in everything that God created. All, every biologist, every evolutionary biologist who sees the innumerable life forms that God created, there is a witness right there. The reason, what happens when they don't recognize that witness? And that witness is not enough for them to be saved. That witness, is, that witness is enough to hold them accountable, to hold them without excuse. But that witness is not enough for them to be saved. We have to preach the gospel to them for them to be saved. But every time they see those innumerable life forms, they recognize that there is a creator. And we are accountable to him. And so a verse that almost all people, a lot of people know, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That holds all people accountable. The only verse that people might know a little bit better or might have heard more often, John 3-16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. God created all life. And when we disobeyed Him, when we suppressed the truth about Him, when we denied Him, as we all have, we forfeited life. But through Jesus Christ, there's life. Amen. Through His death and resurrection, There's life. Turn from your sin. Turn from your denial of our creator. And turn to Jesus Christ. And trust in him. All life came into being through him. All life is for him. And you can have life.